All right, let's uh, begin here this morning. We are looking at uh, chapter sixteen, chapter fourteen, verse six, where we left off last time. Chapter fourteen, verse six, and uh, last time we well, we better have our quiz first, right? You know that quiz. That's the most fun part. Yeah. When completeness comes, refers to the completion of the New Testament canon at the end of the first century. Well, false if you're me, but some people believe, some people do hold that that's what the completeness is. It's never been appealing to me because of the image later on that the illustration that Paul uses about then we shall know even as we're known. I've never been able to quite get that, but that's what some hold. Historically, we know that tongue speaking ceased at the end of the apostolic age. True, right? As far as the church fathers are concerned, they seem to suggest that we read some of that. There's no evidence that it continued on dramatically in the church age there. Three, a key theme in chapter 13 is edification. False. It's 14. 14, the key theme is edification. Tricky, huh? Tricky. Uh-huh. 13 is the love, you know, the love chapter, chapter 13. Chapter 14 is more edification. Everything that's done with the spiritual gift should be for the edification of the body. Edification requires understanding. I think so. I think you have to, you can't bypass the mind, as I said. You've got to understand to be edified and built up. Tongues are of no spiritual value unless they're interpreted. I think that's true. It's what Paul seems to be saying in chapter 14 here. So, uh, we're looking at this section of spiritual gifts, 12.1 through 14.40. And uh, we're spending quite a bit of time here on chapter 14, where he talked about in one the affirmation of the general superiority of prophecy. Remember chapter 14 is about prophecy and tongues. And the point is that uh, prophecy is superior because it is immediately understandable and therefore it can always will be edifying to the person. Tongues requires an interpreter. And then in 14.2 through 25, the section we're in now, a comparison of tongues showing the latter to be superior to the former. Uh, Twelve through nine, uh, two through nineteen is where we're at now. Prophecy will benefit believers more than will tongues again because of this issue about uh, intelligibility. He states the proposition in verses two through five, and now in verses six through nineteen, he's going to support that proposition that. Prophecy will benefit believers more than will tongues. So let's look at that support. I read this last time. Paul now turns to support his proposition that prophecy is superior to tongues by elaborating on the link between intelligibility and edification. Intelligibility, understanding, is the key to edifying speech. Without understanding There's no edification. He says in verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation 
or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. I say here Paul contrasts the usefulness of tongues with that of intelligible types of speech gifts. If he were to come back to Corinth and speak in language, a language unknown to them, say perhaps he spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic, there would be no benefit to the Corinthians. Only if he spoke in a language they understood, which would be, of course, Greek in their case, would they profit. It might come in the form of a revelation from God, a word of knowledge, a prophecy, or some word of instruction. So the question here is, when he says, what good will I be to you? You is plural. What question, What good will I be to you? You, the church. Uh, that's the one that should govern the use of spiritual gifts in the assembly. What good will it be to the church? What is the benefit to the church? That's always the question. Verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is the distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Paul now illustrates the need for intelligibility with an example, with example of musical instruments. A couple of examples here, verse 7 and 8. Music is composed to convey a message, a tune that can be recognized by a particular sequence of notes. Remember those shows they used to have? Was it Name That Tune? Where you you get, how many notes can you, does it take to name? Remember that song? Three notes or four notes, can you hear those notes and recognize that? Well, because those notes have meaning. They are, have a sequence a trumpet can only issue battle commands if the tune is intelligible, understood by the soldiers. So soldiers are, in the past, were, you know, especially the days before radio communication, were instructed to follow the sounds of the bugler, whatever that means, retreat or charge or whatever. You have to understand what that is. Understanding is the key, yeah. Verse 9, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. I say Paul now ties the previous illustration of the Corinthian situation, so it is with you. If the Corinthians do not speak in recognizable words with their physical tongue, in their case Greek, they will be speaking into the air and not really communicating. Now, of course, all this is a criticism of speaking in tongues without interpretation. So apparently that's going on. People are speaking in tongues, as we'll see, and uh, there's no interpreter there, so there's no real communication, there's no real understanding from the people in the church without that interpretation, and so it's just like speaking in the air. Verse 10. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Real languages have meaning. They have, they they convey information. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Paul has made his point about the need for intelligibility in order for the gifts to be useful. But in case the Corinthians have not gotten the point, he continues with another illustration. 
involving normal human languages. Paul did not know how many languages there were in the world, but what he did know was that all languages, including the spiritual gift of tongues or languages, communicate real meaning. Otherwise, the sounds being uttered are not a language. But if one does not know the language being spoken, then there is no communication possible. Nothing useful can be shared. He's really driving this point home over and over and over again. Verse 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So the illustration of understanding a foreign speaker is like the situation in the Corinthians church when someone speaks in tongues and there is no interpreter. So it is with you, just like this illustration in verses 10 and 11. There is no benefit, no edification for the church. Therefore, the church should not should tone down its enthusiasm for tongues and give precedence to those gifts like prophecy that convey truth that is immediately intelligible and thus always able to, as he says, build up the church. Verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Because Paul... Because tongues are languages that the Corinthians will not immediately understand um, because they are only Greek speakers themselves, they should pray that they also exercise the gift of interpretation. As we noted earlier, the word translated interpret is the common word meaning translate from one language to another. Remember Acts, we read that 936, there was... In Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated, interpreted, means Dorcas. That is her Aramaic name, and she has a Greek name, the Greek equivalent. The fact that tongues could be translated or interpreted shows that they were real, meaningful languages. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an interpretation, or just it would be a creation of meaning. If people are just babbling and not saying anything, then the person giving the interpretation is really creating a meaning. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I also sing with my understanding. Paul now explains, with the word for here, why the speaker in tongues should pray for the interpretation. A tongue's prayer without interpretation was ineffective in producing benefit in the lives of others. His spirit prays, but his mind is unfruitful. When Paul refers to my spirit, he could be thinking of what he just said in verse 12 about the gifts of the spirit. That is, he might be referring to the exercise of his spiritual gift of tongues. Now, people are kind of undetermined exactly what Paul means here when he says spirit. When he says, if I pray in my tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So, some people think this he's talking about 
this spiritual gift is working. So when I speak in tongues, when I pray in a tongue, my spiritual gift is working, my spirit prays, but I don't understand it. My mind's unfruitful. I'm the tongue speaker. I'm using my spiritual gift. My spirit's praying. My spiritual gift is working, but you know I don't understand what the language is because I don't understand that foreign language. Some people think that's the case. Uh, or some people think his spirit may be referring to Paul's innermost being. That is, uh, when I pray in a tongue, my innermost being uh, sort of prays. I'm, I'm using my innermost being. I'm functioning as a human being. I'm doing something. It's difficult to know exactly here. But the point being, the point he's saying is, if I exercise this gift of tongues, um, my mind doesn't understand, unless I understand the language. You know, if I if Paul prays in Swahili, he doesn't understand Swahili, and so his mind is unfruitful. Uh, in either case, his mind that his understanding would not benefit from an interpreted tongue. Paul's example here is hypothetical and negative. If I were to pray in a tongue only and not follow my prayer with an interpretation seems to be what Paul is getting at. Clearly, the apostle would not re- does not regard his praying in a tongue as a legitimate spiritual discipline because his mind is unfruitful. That is, I think Paul is giving a hypothetical. If I were to pray in a tongue, if I were just to pray in a tongue and not give an interpretation, this is, not, this is worthless. My mind is unfruitful. So he's saying, if I were to do this, this would be an unfruitful exercise. Um, clearly the apostle does not regard praying in a tongue as a legitimate spiritual discipline because his mind is unfruitful would Paul himself engage in such a practice and thus that has no possibility of edification I, th- I say clearly not Paul wouldn't wouldn't do what they're doing that is speak in a tongue where there's no edification where he doesn't understand it he can't interpret it he says rather I will pray with my spirit but I also pray with my understanding whether praying or singing or whatever activity of communication takes place in the assembly, intelligibility is the key factor if the church is to be edified. All right, verse 16. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say, Amen? to your thanksgiving, since they don't know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So here Paul continues the illustration of someone speaking in tongues, but shifts to the second person plural and uses the Corinthians as the example rather than himself. But otherwise, Paul means, if you are praising God in the Spirit, that is, with the gift of tongues then an inquirer in the assembly will not know what you're saying and thus be able to say amen. Again, Paul's major complaint about their speaking in tongues is that they are not doing it with the tongue, tongues being interpreted. An inquirer refers to a person who finds themselves in the role of the novice when someone prays in a tongue. We don't know exactly what that means, but probably maybe this is a new believer who comes to the assembly and uh, this is new, it's all new, these gifts and so forth. 
new believer who is just experiencing tongue speaking for the first time. And so they don't know what to think. They're hearing this tongue speaking. They don't understand it. It's not being interpreted. So they're not used. They're not able to say amen to that. They can't say amen, which means you know true. Uh, the Hebrew word true is true. So I can't say amen. Uh, and of course, as he says, no one is edified. You're giving thanks. You have the tongue speaker is speaking in a language saying something true but no one without the interpretation understands and no one is edified and the new inquirer is really sort of mixed up you know they they really they don't know what to think of this they can't say amen to what you're doing because they don't understand verse 18 I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. We assume it means an uninterpreted tongue. I'd rather speak five words uh, that can be understood rather than a thousand words where there's no understanding. Paul makes it clear that this lack of enthusiasm for the gift of tongues is not because he does not possess the gift. We assume he does. I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's got the gift. But he did not place the same value on the gift as the Corinthians. Paul preferred to speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The apostle was concerned with instruction, edification in the church. And that puts tongue speakers at a disadvantage to other other speaking gifts like prophecy. Where did Paul speak in tongues more than the Corinthians? It's argued by charismatics that Paul was an avid tongue speaker in private. But I think this would run completely counter to Paul's argument throughout chapters 12 through 14 that spiritual gifts are for the purpose of benefiting persons other than the one exercising the gift. We've seen that over and over again. Each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So it is with you, since you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit. Try to excel in those that build up the church, and later we'll see. What should we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word or an instruction, revelation, tongue, interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. So I say in light of that emphasis, Paul would hardly have set himself up as an example of claimed superiority on the basis of his own selfish private use of one of the gifts. That was the very thing he was combating among the Corinthians. The private use of something intended for others is certainly nothing to boast about. The purpose of tongues was a public one, as we'll see in 14, 20 through 25, especially verse 22. It must then be in connection with a public ministry of some kind that Paul found occasion to exercise the gift of tongues, I think. As the missionary apostle to the Gentiles, he frequently encountered new linguistic groups in his travels. Authenticating signs accompanied by his ministry and tongues was one of those signs, apparently. I mean, at least there's a cut, you know, we know... Romans 15 says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. 
by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And we mentioned 12, 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of apostles, signs, wonders, and miracles. So I think maybe that Paul would have spoken in tongues uh, as a sign. He may have he may have used it for an evangelistic purpose. It's you know I I don't see tongues as primarily an evangelistic tool. It doesn't seem to be that way even on the day of Pentecost because um, they spoke in tongues the day of Pentecost. And the people there said, we hear them speaking about the marvelous works of God, with the mighty works of God. That's how they describe what the speakers are saying. And then Peter gets up and speaks and gives the gospel, you know. But it's possible that that maybe uh, Paul may have used this on occasion. Uh, it's not clear to me that he could, he could have. But probably more, I think, as a sign, a sign of an apostle, a miraculous sign, and so forth. I say, upon hearing a foreign foreigner speak their own language without ever studying it, the listeners would perceive the apostle's miraculous demonstration and be ready to give attention to his divinely verified presentation of the gospel. So that's what seems to be happening in the book of Acts, is people hear this, this is wonderful. This is marvelous. We hear them speaking in our own language, and then they're they're brought they're they're they're, they're they they're open to hearing what Peter then has to say, and Peter explains what he's saying there. All right. So um, prophecy will um, prophecy will benefit believers more than will tongues, and prophecy will benefit unbelievers more than will tongues. Uh, 14, 20 through 25. Verses 20 through 25 present, represent Paul's final argument persuading the Corinthians to put emphasis on prophecy instead of tongues in their public worship. Verses 20 through 25 represent Paul's final... Oh, so I'm sorry, verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. So Paul begins here this new section with an exhortation, noting that there's a place for childlike attitude, for a childlike attitude, but that's in reference to doing evil. But children are enthralled by what is showy and prefer the amusing to what is useful. When it comes to thinking, they should act like adults who consider the needs of others. Again, I think this is a clear rebuke to their stance on tongues, which he considers to be infantile. They're not, they're not seeing the real purpose of tongues. and it's, it's really, they're not thinking of others. They're not thinking like adults here. Verse 21. In the law it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Through the law often denotes just the Pentateuch. Uh, Though the law often denotes just the Pentateuch, it sometimes is used to designate the Old Testament as a whole, scriptures in a wider sense. For example, in Romans 3.19, Paul refers to what the law says, but quotes from the Psalms. 
So here in verse 21, also the law is a reference to Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. In the original context, this is this phrase, with other tongues and the, through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. We're talking about Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. In the original context, Isaiah says that because God's people were refusing to listen to the clear, understandable message of the prophet to change their sinful ways and turn back to the Lord God, the Lord, God was going to send against them a nation of an unfamiliar language. So the Assyrians in judgment. So they wouldn't listen to what the prophets were saying. They wouldn't listen to what God was saying. So he's going to speak to them through judgment, through this nation, the Assyrians, whose language they don't know. The Assyrians would give the Israelites painful orders in their own language that they would be unable to understand. But even that severe method of judgment would not cause, cause God's people to return to him. He said, "You will not. You, even then, you won't even listen to me when I bring this judgment upon you." The tongues of the Syrians was a sign of God's judgment on Israel. Verse twenty-two. Paul picks up on that. He says, "Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers." Paul draws a conclusion then from this episode in Israel's history. Just as tongues, the genuine human language of the Assyrians, in Isaiah's day were a proof of divine presence and activity, so was the case on the day of Pentecost when those who understood the languages being spoken were amazed. Something is happening here. God is working here. However, those local Jews from Jerusalem who did not understand the foreign languages made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The purpose of tongues was a sign to authenticate a gen as genuine the message of God's spokesman. So what I'm saying here is, I uh, uh, should have... Well, let me just reflect here on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, there's actually two reactions. If you read, read Acts chapter 2 there. One reaction is, some people are amazed. We hear these people, we hear these people speaking in our own languages, these wonderful works of God. So those people who came into the Feast of Pentecost, uh, remember Israelites were required, Israelite men, were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. The, the temple is in Jerusalem. The altar is there. You sacrifice. You, you, you make sacrifices in Jerusalem. And so everybody couldn't come to the temple every day. But the men were required to go three times a year. One of them was the Feast of Pentecost. They were required to go. So you've got people coming in to Jerusalem there on the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over are coming in. And... Uh, who speak various languages, and when they hear these languages, they're amazed. Hey, we hear them speaking in our own, and they, you know, they list all the languages there in Acts chapter 2 that they hear uh, the apostles speaking in. But there's another reaction. Um, 
by some, Acts chapter 2, verse 13, some of the Jews say, these people are crazy, man. They're mad. They've had too much wine. They're the local Jews. And they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand these languages. They just hear this stuff being spoken, and they don't understand it. So there's a, there's a, there's a reaction here. They, they don't quite understand that. Um, so I said here, the primary purpose of tongues was a sign to authenticate as gentlemen the message of God's spokesman. But, you know, that's, that was, uh, that was not understood, only understood by the people who understood the language. I say this was also true in Acts 10 at the house of Cornelius. So in the house of Cornelius, you remember the incident in Acts chapter 10, uh, the, the spirit fell on Cornelius as Peter was preaching, and Peter says, what, for, what, what we should baptize these people. They obviously received the spirit just like we did and so forth. And the confirmation that the spirit had come was they spoke in tongues. Peter said, this is just like what happened on the day of Pentecost. So I say tongues are, I don't think, are primarily conduits for special revelation for believers, though they can function that way when interpreted. Prophecy, on the other hand, is designed uh, to edify believers. So tongues are not a sign. They were a sign for these unbelievers, like on the day of Pentecost. They're not a sign for they're for believers in that sense. They can help believers. They edify believers if they're interpreted and so forth. Verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquires, and, and excuse me, and inquires or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Like on the day of Pentecost. Just as the local unbelieving Jews on the day of Pentecost scoffed and mocked at the apostles speaking in languages they did not understand, so an unbelieving Greek who visits the Corinthian assembly and hears multiple tongues with no interpretation will have a similar reaction. You're, you know, you're out of your mind. This is exactly the same reaction that the unbelieving Jews did on the day of Pentecost. So unbelievers who would come into the assembly and hear this, they're going to think you're out of your mind. No interpretation. Verse 24. But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So the opposite reaction of unbelievers shows that the superior are prophecy. Presumably, I think we have to presume here, the content of the prophecy includes the gospel because it says uh, they hear you prophesying, they're convicted of sin, they're brought under judgment, their hearts are laid bare. So apparently in this prophetic you know, prophecy, Paul is assuming the gospel, the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment, these things are being talked about, prophesied about. On hearing the gospel, the individual comes under conviction of sin and sees the truth with the result that they would come to repentance. They'll fall down, there's their repentance, fall down to repentance and faith, they will worship God, sort of indication of faith. So he's just saying... Unbelievers are going to be helped by hearing uh, the truth in a language that they 
can understand. So Paul has gone to long lengths here, tremendous lengths to talk about the importance of intelligibility and the deficiency that tongues can have when they're not interpreted. They do have when they're not interpreted. So now he's going to do some regulation. Uh, Regulation uh, for worship, including spiritual gifts. He's going to say something about prophecy too, but primarily tongues, but also prophecy. In this final section of chapters 12 through 14, Paul issues some rules to regulate the worship services of the Corinthians. These regulations are designed to ensure that the church is edified and everything is done in a fitting and orderly way, as he'll say at the end. So tongues and prophecy. First of all, some the overarching principle here is in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. The words, what shall we say then, indicate that Paul is now summing up the implications of his discussion for what the Corinthians should do in their meeting. The overarching principle is that everything must be done so the church may be built up. Built up is that word edify, the theme of chapter 14. So in chapter 14, it's translated strengthen one time, is translated built up, and it's also translated edify. So built up, edify, strengthen. It's the same exact Greek word here. Well, we see now the exercise of tongues. He's going to talk about the regulation of tongues in verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Paul now applies the general principle of edification to the exercise of tongues and prophecy, as we'll see in verses 29 through 33a. Four restrictions, all in keeping with the principle of edification, are mentioned with reference to tongue speaking. First, In a single meeting, it is to be two or at the most three who speak in tongues. Second, they are to speak one at a time, that is, in turn, not all at the same time. Third, someone must interpret, verse 27. Now, exactly what Paul means by someone must interpret is not exactly clear here. I'll explain. Paul may just be reiterating his requirement in verses 5 and 13 that tongues must always be interpreted. So that's, that's, I think, the most common interpretation here is that Paul is just reiterating. Okay, you can speak, you know, two can speak, the most three, and then, then someone has to interpret it. Or, you know, you can't speak at all. So he just may be insisting upon interpretation. Um, but it's not clear that that's the case uh, about what Paul intends because the word translated someone can also mean one. 
The idea being that one must interpret. So the New American Standard translates here, you know, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three, one, uh, and one must interpret. <laughs> and one must interpret. Um, it's, it's a little difficult here because the Greek word for one, O-N-E, one, can mean one, as the New American Standard says here, one person must interpret. That could be it. But quite often, the Greek word for one, O-N-E, uh, just means it's used like an indefinite A, a, a person, someone. So the NIV has someone here. The ESV has someone. Um, we do that even in English. We use the word one sometimes in an indefinite sense just to mean anyone, someone. Uh, we say, I will see you again one day. I will see you again. I'll, I'll see you again one day. We don't mean one day versus two days. We mean someday. I'll see you again someday. That's the same thing we have here. So interpreters uh, differ a little bit here. I'm, I'm not positive here. Paul just may be just reinforcing someone must interpret. We can't just have you tongue speaking. Or it might be, as I say here, uh, that one person, the one person might possibly be the speaker or someone else. Now, if you say it's one person, possibly the use of more than one interpreter would delay or cause confusion. That's how this is. So, if Paul really means, and just one person must interpret, we don't want a bunch of people. If, if there is a person who has the gift of interpretation, just let that person interpret it and don't get a bunch of people. It might be that. I'm not, I'm not positive here that both are possible here, and you'll see different translations. will opt for one of these or the other. Fourth, if there is no one present who is able to interpret, the tongue speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Paul clearly means that the tongue speaker remains in control of himself. The tongue speaker remains in control of themselves. They are not carried away so that they are not are fully responsible for what they say or do, but rather can hold their tongues. Now, one of the, uh, one of the things about pagan religions was there were priests and priestesses who supposedly fell into a trance and were carried away with ecstasies and spoke, you know, sort of gibberish, and they couldn't control it. It just came out. But Paul says no. Uh, here, there's no such thing as being carried away. They can hold their tongues. The gift of tongues is not one that causes the speaker to lose control of their speech. The same point Paul will make later about prophecy. One or two or three. And if there's no interpreter, keep quiet. You don't have to say it. The phrase, speak to himself and to God, explains what it means for the tongue speaker to keep quiet in the church. Paul is saying that there is no interpreter. They should engage in silent communion with God, I think. Well, the exercise of prophecy. The exercise of prophecy, 29 through 31. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Paul uses similar language in the regulation of the prophets as he does with tongues. That is, only two or three prophets should speak. Even though he valued prophecy over tongues, it too need, needed, should say there, needed to be regulated. With tongues, he made it clear that there was 
to be at the most three. He doesn't add that restriction here. He says two or three prophets should speak. Paul accepted three prophetic utterances more readily than he did three messages with tongues. See, tongue says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most. Here he says, two or three prophets should speak. That also seems clear from the fact that in regulating tongues, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, but here he says, two or three prophets should speak. So he's saying prophecy, he seems to, again, prefer prophecy by the way he even regulates it. Two or three prophets should speak uh, in verse 27, if someone speaks in a tongue. He says others should weigh carefully what is said. These others were probably those who possessed the gift of distinguishing between the spirits. The verb weigh carefully has the same idea, has, has the idea of examining something to judge the overall value of what is examined. Here it refers to distinguishing a true prophet, I think, from a false prophet by weighing the accuracy of each prophecy. This is the same standard used for prophets in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, and 18, 20 through 22. So remember Paul, uh, Moses says, if a prophet, one who foretells by dreams, appears among you, and announces to you a sign or wonder, if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. So here's a prophet who comes in, he has some sign or wonder, he can perform something, it comes, it's a, it's a miraculous, seems like a miraculous thing, but he says, let us follow other gods, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer, the Lord your your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So you just don't accept a prophet. One, one test of a prophet is he's got to speak according, in their case, to what God had told them in the law. Or we would say in the Bible. You know, If someone comes and says something not in the Bible, then that would be wrong. Deuteronomy 18 is another passage. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken of by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is, a message of the Lord has not spoken, the message, a message the Lord has not spoken, that prophet has spoken presumptively, so do not be alarmed. Um... So, um, you could judge prophecy, judge prophets by, did something come true? You could judge prophets by the way they, if they say, go away from the Lord or what the Lord says or so forth. So there's always the possibility of false prophecy, uh, Paul says. It has to be weighed carefully what is said. I don't think this means that a prophet had to be verified, prophets had to be verified continually but it does uh, lay down a general principle that any potential prophet would have to be scrutinized um, to see if what they're saying is true and genuine and so forth, meets with Scripture and what they know about the gospel. Verse 30, yes. But would, would that have been done 
ahead of them speaking? I mean, would they be allowed to get up and give prophecy if it wasn't initially scrutinized? No, I think I think they would, yeah. I think so. Really? Well, that's what it seems to say here. Uh, a prophet should say, then others should weigh carefully this. So, obviously... Uh, I think once that happens, this person is not going to be speaking again. You know, if a person speaks falsely, speaks untruly, speaks something contrary, I don't think that person would be speaking again. I just find that I, I, yeah. my own brain, yeah. I'm thinking how illogical that is. Well, maybe, <laughs> but this it, it's, that's, that's what the text looks like it says here, because they you have to weigh carefully what they say. You're weighing it in the assembly here. There, there are people here who are I'm who are doing this. Like in our times, like we, we kind of evaluate initially before somebody's even allowed to get in front of people. True, know? but we don't have miraculous, we don't have this miraculous gift of prophecy like they did, a direct communication from God. So when Old Testament prophets spoke, no one evaluated their prophecy beforehand generally. You know, they just spoke that prophecy. And I think that's probably true here at the church too. But obviously, if you, you know, if you get if you have someone who has a genuine gift, you have confidence in them that what they're saying is true and genuine. But it's always the possibility of falseness, untruthfulness, and so just being deceived by prophets and so forth. So it has to be weighed carefully. Discerning. He has this gift of distinguishing between spirits. Is this the spirit of God or is this some other spirit? You know, We can have false spirits who can say things even in the assembly. So you have to, has to be discerned. Verse 30. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first first speaker should stop. Perhaps Paul issues this regulation because he is aware that some prophets were monopolizing the time. I mean, again, this seems very strange, doesn't it? (laughs) Seems very strange. Uh, But he says... If a revelation comes to someone who is setting down, the first speaker should stop. Paul's overriding principle is that everything should be done in fitting in a fitting and orderly way. Prophecy is essentially revelation. So, you know, this prophecy, these prophets weren't uncontrolled. A prophecy came to them; they could speak it, but they didn't have to speak it. They weren't just uncontrolled. So Paul says, perhaps I'm saying the reason here is that uh, someone is monopolizing the time. Verse 31. For all of you can prophesy in turn so everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Paul now explains for how the prophet's willingness to yield to one another would result in greater benefit to the church. This requires deference and self-control. When conditions were such that permitted all the prophets to speak, the whole congregation, including the prophets themselves, received more instruction and encouragement. Admittedly, this is difficult because we don't have the gifts operating like this in the church today. So we don't know, you know, we just know Paul is regulating them here in Corinth. And so we we have a limited amount of information. Then there's a final admonition here in 32 through 33. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Paul makes it clear that prophecy is not some ecstatic experience. Uh, As I say, this was common in the ancient world. 
Um, they had oracles. Maybe you've heard of the Delphic Oracle, um, just north of north of Corinth. There, you know, somewhat north, there was an oracle called the Delphic Oracle, where people would go and find out what the gods were saying. And so you would consult a local oracle. It's like a, a fortune teller, but you would go to the thing, pay your money, and then some somebody would utter some some priestess or priest would utter something and something you didn't understand and some fall into some trance and then there would be someone who would the priest of the oracle would tell you what it meant and these oracles were generally uh, they were very nebulous in what they said um, because they didn't you know there's like astrology it's like horoscopes you know how horoscopes are you know they're, you know they can apply to anybody, and you can't figure out what they're. Don't tell me you never looked at a horoscope. Okay, just don't don't look at me like that. You know? <laughs> okay. So uh, the famous one is that at the Delphic Oracle, there was the king, King of Lydia. Uh, this is back in the Persian days and the Greek days, and uh, so he uh, he went to the Delphic Oracle and asked him if he. If he fought this battle, would he win? And, he, and what would happen? And the Delphic Oracle said, "Yeah, if you if you engage this battle and you fight, uh, a great victory will be won. If you if you fight this battle, a great victory will be won." Well, he goes into battle, he loses. He goes back to the Delphic Oracle. What happened? Well, you didn't say, you didn't ask us who would win. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing you get. Uh, in these kind of prophecies. But here, notice, it's very interesting that there's the, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Both in tongues and prophecy, the speaker was in control of the timing of their utterance. For Paul explains, this goes back to the character of God, who is not a God of disorder. Paul's regulations about tongues and prophecy are not just his own arbitrary ideas, but are rooted in the character of God himself. Now the next thing, verses thirty-three through thirty-six. I didn't. I thought I would stop here because they deal with a difficult thing: the role of women in the church. Women should remain silent in the churches. You know what it says there about that. But we'll see if if you did wrong today. Okay. I don't think you did, but but we'll have to look at that next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us and give us understanding of these truths so that we might function ourselves more effectively in our own local body, in our own assembly, and that our own conduct and work and ministries might be for the edification, the building up of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.